Section 7 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 7, France and Spain. On September 1st, 1715, Louis XIV, generally called Le Grand Monarque, died, and a cry of relief ran through all France. The reign of repression was over. Men felt that nothing which might follow could be worse than that which had been. The public rejoicing went even to indecent lengths. The Jesuits could with difficulty be protected from the public rage. Louis Fourteenth was seventy-seven when he died. He had begun to reign when he was only five years old, and now a little boy of the same age, his great-grandson, also a Louis, was his successor. During the last four and a half years of the reign of the old king, numerous deaths in the royal family had followed on the public calamities and distress of the kingdom. Five years previously, the king's son, the Dauphin, was living, and his grandson, the Duke of Burgundy. France was in a condition that required a strong and wise government, rather than a minor for a king, together with all the perils and cabals which mark a regency. At the beginning of the century, the great engineer Vauban declared that nearly a tenth of the country was reduced to beggary, and that of the rest only another tenth was in any position to give to beggars. Since the beginning of the century, the distress had become much worse. On the death of Louis XIV, the public debt amounted to two billion four hundred million francs, or about a hundred million pounds sterling a sum at that day unheard of for a national debt. The credit of the French government was so bad that it had to give four times the value in notes for any cash that it raised. Throughout France commerce was paralyzed, the nobles were crippled by debt, the officials could not obtain their salaries. In many parts the peasants were starving. The condition of the country was a terrible comment on the glories of the reign of Louis Fourteenth. The late king had made an elaborate testament, with arrangements for the regency and for the education of his little successor, but he did not himself expect that attention would be paid to it. As soon as I am dead, he remarked, it will be disregarded. I know well enough what was done with the will of the king, my father. Philip, Duke of Orléans, brother's son of the late king, was the nearest prince of the blood, and in spite of the late king's will, the Parliament of Paris decreed that the Duke of Orléans should have the regency without a council, that is, that he should have supreme power. It may be as well here to remark that the Parliament of Paris was a court of law, not a legislative assembly like an English Parliament. The Duke of Orléans, father of this Philip, and brother of Louis Fourteenth, may be regarded as the founder of the House of Orléans. The great-grandson of the regent, was the duke known as Egalité during the French Revolution. His son was Louis-Philippe, King of the French, from 1830 to 1848, whose grandson in turn is the Count of Paris, the present representative of the old royal family of France. With the new reign and new regent came a new policy. The Duke of Orléans, knowing the exhausted state of the country, was determined on a policy of peace, especially of peace, and, if possible, of friendship with England, 
although he knew full well that this was a complete reversal of the traditions of his country. Early in 1717, a formal alliance was made between France, England, and the Dutch, to which the name of the Triple Alliance was given. The French entirely abandoned the cause of the pretender and recognized the House of Brunswick. The basis of the Triple Alliance was the complete carrying out of the terms of the Treaty of Utrecht, or to put it in other words, the maintenance of existing arrangements in Europe. In 1718, the Emperor Charles VI also joined the alliance, which then received the name of the Quadruple Alliance. But there was little difference beyond the name. The object was the same. The only proposal of alterations in the conditions of the Treaty of Utrecht was the exchange of Sicily for Sardinia, the Emperor taking Sicily, and the Duke of Savoy, Sardinia. Herein the Emperor gained a manifest advantage. Sardinia was by no means as valuable as Sicily, though more handy for the Duke of Savoy. Therefore it was agreed that the latter should assume the title of King of Sardinia. The Great War in the reign of Queen Anne was called the War of the Spanish Succession. Of the two claimants to the crown of Spain, the Archduke Charles was now the Emperor Charles VI, and his rival Philip was recognized as King of Spain. This King Philip of Spain lost his wife just after the accession of George I in England, and had married again. His new wife was Elizabeth Farnese, Princess of Parma, niece of the reigning Duke of Parma, a strong-minded and very ambitious woman. As the Duke of Parma had no children, she claimed to be recognized as his heiress. When later a son was born to her, she was still more anxious to obtain this inheritance for him. For some time forward this claim was a constant source of danger to the peace of Europe. For though the triple or quadruple alliance tended to produce peace, there was one power in Europe that would not acquiesce to these arrangements. Spain was the power which had suffered most from the Treaty of Utrecht, and Spain at this time was under an ambitious, bold, and able minister. Cardinal Alberoni was a man of remarkable talent, which, together with unscrupulousness, had raised him in spite of natural disadvantages from the humblest origin. He is described, though certainly not by a friendly hand, as a dwarf, with broad shoulders, a thick head, with a face marked with smallpox, and with hardly any nose at all. His father was a poor gardener in a small town in Italy, but the son, having received from charity the rudiments of education, entered the service of the church, and gradually rose therein. Diplomacy lured him from the proper work of the church, and he made himself useful first in the small Italian court of Parma, then especially through the means of flattery and assumed jocularity to a French general in Italy, who in turn introduced him to Louis the Fourteenth. When the king of Spain married Elizabeth of Parma, Alberoni passed into the service of Spain, where he resolutely set himself to the task of raising the country from the terrible condition into which she had fallen. If France was in a bad plight, Spain was in a worse. Spain was then very much in the state that France was afterwards, at the time of the Revolution, after another seventy years of misery, misrule, and war, and the distress of Spain proceeded from somewhat similar causes. The finances were embarrassed, the administration was bad, 
the growth of trade was fettered by the division of the land into provinces, each with its own ring of custom houses. The nobility and clergy claimed exemption from taxation. Luckily for Alberoni, the crown was very strong. By its power alone, he deprived the nobility and clergy of their immunity and abolished the internal custom houses. The public administration was greatly improved. One circumstance helped Alberoni's efforts. Spain had lost all her foreign possessions, which, though doubtless at one time a source of revenue, had lately been merely an encumbrance and an expense. Let your majesty remain but five years at peace, said Alberoni to the king, and I will make you the most powerful monarch in Europe. Had all these changes been made solely to increase the happiness of Spain and its inhabitants, no praise would be too great. By them, perhaps, he saved Spain from the catastrophe which awaited France. But they were made only as a means to an end, that Spain might embark on a war of aggression in order to win back her former greatness. Alberone was as ambitious as any of the proud Spaniards who were offended at his reforms, but he saw more clearly than they that only through an increase of internal resources and careful husbandry of finance would Spain have power abroad. Within five years after the Treaty of Utrecht, Alberone had so husbanded the internal resources of Spain that he considered her in a position to strive after winning back some of the possessions which she had lost in the last war. Against different members of the alliance, he set different schemes on foot. Against Austria, there is no doubt that he was secretly encouraging the Turks. Strange though it may seem that a cardinal should urge Mohammedans against a Christian power. In order to occupy the attention of England, Alberoni was working in order to induce Charles Twelfth of Sweden, angry about the cession of Bremen and Verden, to attempt an invasion on behalf of the pretender. The Swedish hero would have proved a formidable opponent for any English general except Marlborough. For France, Alberoni's design was to ferment conspiracies against the regent, and to lend a helping hand to all who were discontented with his government. The King of Spain himself entertained a strong feeling of hatred towards his relative, the regent, and was only too ready in every way to oppose him. One formidable conspiracy against the regent was discovered and crushed, by way of example, with great severity. Without any formal declaration of war, a powerful Spanish fleet was equipped. Its destination was not known until Europe heard that this Spanish force had wrested the island of Sardinia from Austria, for the cession to Savoy was not yet carried out. When a little later a Spanish fleet was sent to attempt to regain Sicily, an English fleet was found there ready to resist them. This fleet was under the command of Admiral Bing, the father of that Admiral Bing who was shot for not fighting the enemy at the outset of the Seven Years' War. Palermo fell an easy prey to the Spaniards, but the citadel of Messina held out against them. A naval action ensued in which Bing entirely destroyed the Spanish fleet. Charles Twelfth, however, had other enemies besides George I, and in attacking Norway, he fell at the siege of Frederikshall. His fall was destined to a barren strand, a petty fortress, and a dubious hand. But in spite of the death of Charles XII, Alberoni still determined to persevere with his attempt to help the pretender. At Cadiz, 
a small fleet was collected of men of war and transports, together with five thousand men and arms for six times as many Jacobites in Scotland. The Duke of Ormond was to assume the command. But the English government received news of the attempt, and as on many other occasions, the elements seemed to fight for England. A storm scattered the fleet when crossing the Bay of Biscay. Two ships reached Scotland with three hundred Spanish soldiers. They were joined by some two thousand Highlanders. But this little force could do nothing and was easily annihilated in the valley of Glenshiel. Shortly afterwards, war was declared against Spain both by France and England. The pretender, fancying that this was his opportunity, hastened to Madrid, where he was received with royal honors. The French sent a force across the Spanish frontier under the Duke of Berwick and seized the town of Fontarabia. A short while previously, this same duke had been commanding French troops fighting on the side of the King of Spain. An English fleet took the town of Vigo, not for the first time that it was taken by England. An Austrian army turned the Spaniards out of Sicily. By the end of the year, peace was made, the chief condition of peace being the dismissal of Alberoni as a general troubler of the public quiet. End of section 7